Have you ever observed a child watching their first movie in a movie theater? If so, you've probably enjoyed the experience. The eyes are often wide and unblinking, the mouth gaping open, the hand perhaps full of popcorn but forgetting to go to the mouth. At least for me, I often find watching a child watch their first movie in a movie theater to be more entertaining than the movie itself. How we respond to stimuli is not merely entertaining, it's revealing. How we respond to danger, conflict, pain, pleasure, surprise, or change says a lot about who we are. You know, it's been said that life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you will react. And whatever you think of that rather arbitrary statistic, I think we can all agree that how we respond to things in life is significant. Today, we're going to consider the most significant response in life. How do we respond to God? And how does God respond to us? How do we respond to God and how has God responded to us? This summer, we've been considering various responses to Jesus and different aspects of Jesus' identity in our sermon series through the Gospel of Mark, Amazed and Confused in the Presence of Jesus. And today, we have come to the final act. I want to say, just as an aside, what a joy it's been to, to preach the Gospel of Mark to you all. Uh, I know I've been encouraged, and I appreciate your, your prayers and your encouragement through this journey. You know, you would think that Mark would conclude his story about Jesus with a climactic and thunderous conclusion with Jesus at the center stage, right? That's what we would expect after all we've seen Jesus say and do. But Mark doesn't quite do that at least not in the way that we would think. In fact, if, if Mark is the cinematographer, he rarely focuses his camera directly on Jesus in our text today. Instead, his camera is focused on the different characters as they respond to Jesus. Subtly, we will see that the camera is on us too. Unlike a good movie, Mark's gospel concludes abruptly with loose ends not tied up, and it leaves us with a lot of questions so that most of all, you and I might consider how we might pick up the story, how we might respond 2,000 years later to this gospel that in God's kindness has come to us, even at the ends of the earth. So, my prayer for us today, as we look at God's Word, is that we would not just stand amazed in the presence of Jesus today, but that we would not be able to help but worship Him as the Son of God and respond in repentance and faith and joyful proclamation of the gospel. So, here's my main argument for you this morning, respond to the Son of God 
by repenting, believing, and proclaiming the gospel. Respond to the Son of God by repenting, believing, and proclaiming the gospel. In other words, it's a three-point sermon. We're going to consider three ways to respond to the Son of God in the gospel. And first, we should repent. In Mark 14, we saw Jesus abandoned by his friends. In his hour of greatest need, Jesus is betrayed, abandoned, denied. I made the case last week, if you were here, you might remember, that we can all relate to the faithlessness of Christ's disciples, for we have all been unfaithful to Jesus in word, thought, and deed. We can all relate to Jesus' unfaithful friends. But what about Jesus' enemies? Can we relate to them? Listen to what Jesus' enemies do to him as I read Mark 15, 16 through 32. I would encourage you to open your Bibles and follow along with me. I'm glad to tell you that we'll be reading all of the text this morning. Uh, You can follow along. If you want to use one of the Black Pew Bibles, it's on page 904. Mark 15, picking things up in verse 16. The soldiers led him away into the palace, that is the governor's residence, and called the whole company together. They dressed him in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns, and put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! They were hitting him on the head with a stick and spitting on him. Getting down on their knees, they were paying him homage. After they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his clothes on him. They led him out to crucify him. They forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. And they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Then they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. That was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge written against him was, the king of the Jews. They crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, ha, the one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests and the scribes were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him taunted him. First, did you notice who is mocking Jesus. In verses 16 through 20, it's the soldiers. And in verses 29 through 32, it's the crowd and the religious leaders. Look again at verses 16 through 20. For these Roman soldiers, it's likely just another day at the office. They're having a little fun on Friday with their morning task. And Pilate really served up an easy target for them today. For it's easiest to mock those who claim to have great authority and power. And so the soldiers enjoy bringing this king of the Jews down a notch with a mock coronation ceremony. Now look down at verses 29 through 32. 
We see the crowd taunting Jesus, throwing his words back in his face, and the religious leaders join in the fun. In the middle of all the mocking, in the second part of verse 20 through verse 28, we have the crucifixion. You would think that in the middle of all the mocking of Jesus, if you had never heard the story before, based on what we've seen so far in Mark's gospel, that Jesus would really sock it to his enemies at this point. Just like he did in the temple when he went five rounds with the religious authorities and put them in their place. But in this scene, Jesus doesn't say a word. In fact, the camera never focuses directly on Jesus at all. The focus is on everyone and everything as they respond to Jesus. And with little sentimentality or sensationalism, Mark records in verse 24, then they crucified him. Simply stated, then they crucified him. Why? Why was Jesus mocked and crucified like this? Why did Jesus have to die? Why couldn't the Father have found another way just as Jesus had prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? Take this cup from me. I think verse 32 gives us the answer to some of these questions, or at least least it gets us start going in the right direction. Did you notice the words of the religious leaders in verse 32? Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. So that we may see and believe. A proud and doubting world demands proof according to its own terms in order to believe. But Jesus stayed on that cross because this is the cost of human pride. Friends, I think we're a lot like these mockers because we too are proud. We make demands of God and get upset when He doesn't obey us. We demand proof of His love, care, and power on our terms. But what kind of God would He be if He gave entitled and proud children like us what we say we need in order to believe? This isn't worship. This is using God. And at times we have all been guilty. At least I know I have. Here at the cross, God gives us something better than a king made in our own image. A king, according to the wisdom of the world, who reveals his power and authority right here by, like, coming off that cross with 
a legion of angels and saying, oh, you want to you see the king of the Messiah? Here I am. That's what we kind of want when we read this. But here we have the true king, bloodied, wearing a crown of thorns, lifted up in shame, so that only those who believe will see the power, wisdom, and love of our God. I wonder, is this what you see when you consider the cross? Unfortunately, all too often, our pride blinds us. So how will God respond to a proud people like us? Well, let's consider the cross again, but this time from God's perspective. I love how one, I think, 17th century Baptist preacher put it about the irony of the crucifixion. Pastoral residents may recognize this longish quote. When Christ uttered in the judgment hall of Pilate the remarkable words, I am a king, he pronounced a sentiment fraught with unspeakable dignity and power. His enemies might deride his pretensions and express their mockery of his claim by presenting him with a crown of thorns, a reed and a purple robe, and nailing him to the cross. But in the eyes of unfallen intelligences, he was a king. A higher power presided over that derisive ceremony and converted it into a real coronation. That crown of thorns was indeed the diadem of an empire. That purple robe was the badge of royalty. That fragile reed was the symbol of unbounded power. And that cross, the throne of dominion, which shall never end. Friends, as we consider how we make demands of God in our pride, consider the response of God to his enemies. Christ was lifted up for his enemies and stayed on that cross to be the ransom for many. It was necessary that King Jesus die in the place of proud sinners like you and me. He did not vindicate himself on that cross by coming down, but he stayed there to pay the price for all who would turn from their pride and find their hope in him. You know, those who see the cross from God's perspective as the coronation of the king, the glory of the Son of God dying for sinners like you and me, those who see the cross from that perspective cannot help but respond. Instead of making demands of God, saying, well, God, if you do this for me, then I will serve you in this way. If you provide this for me, okay, then I'll worship you. Then I'll be thankful. But those who see the cross instead, as we just sang, pour contempt on all their pride and come to Christ in humble repentance. What, is, what does that mean? Repentance is a very church, churchy word. What does that look like? What might it look like for you to pour contempt on all your pride as you seek to see the cross, Christ there for you? 
Well, we can, talk, we can talk about repentance in a number of ways. Literally, it means to change one's mind, to change one's mind, making a 180-degree turn, coming to an end of yourself. I, I like the, the phrase, taking God's side against your sin, taking God's side against your sin. Thomas Watson said it this way, either sin must drown in the tears of repentance, or the soul must burn in hell. Friends, one of the reasons why I'm so thankful for this church is because of the example of repentance that you are, to me, of what repentance looks like. What does repentance look like? Well, I I look at your lives. I, I, I love the dramatic stories, right, from like addict to believer, from drug dealer uh, to faithful follower of Jesus, uh, those, those stories are always encouraging and, and amazing. It shows us the power of the gospel. But I also think in God's economy, it is just as amazing when children and youth who are raised in the church come to repent of their sins and believe that Christ was there for them, that it was their sin that held them there. That's just as much a miracle. So, kids, if you're listening, listen up. One of the greatest gifts, youth and kids, that you have in this church is that many of you have parents or grandparents and certainly this church family who are regularly praying for your repentance. They're regularly praying that God would give you eyes to see with faith to come to an end of your sin and see the price that Christ paid on the cross for you. The the church, it is our privilege as a church to go before the Father in the name of King Jesus and ask Him to give eyes to see our pride for what it is. And we are praying regularly that God would humble the the children and the youth of this church uh, so that they might be done with going their own way and seeking to serve themselves. And instead, that they would give themselves in repentance to King Jesus and know that He stayed on the cross for them. That is a hard thing to believe. That's an impossible thing to believe in our own wisdom. You know, if you were raised like me, I kept my nose pretty clean. I didn't do dramatically horrible things as I compared myself to some of my friends. So it was difficult for me to think, oh yeah, my sin deserved a Savior to die on the cross to pay the penalty. I thought as I, that God graded on a curve and he was probably glad to have me on his team as a kid. Uh, but the Lord in his kindness revealed to me that this is what my sin deserved, the wrath of God, which we'll consider in a minute. So, church, just a reminder, this is our joyful privilege to pray uh, for the children, for the youth, uh, for all who don't know Christ, that the Lord would open blind eyes, that we might see our need of a Savior, and that we might come to humble repentance in Him. I love the the line in How Great the Father's Love for Us. 
where it says, Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Maybe you've been singing that hymn much of your life. But can you really, can you hear your mocking voice call out among the scoffers? Do you really believe, honestly, that it was your sin that held him there on the cross? Friends, if we will receive any benefit from this king, we must see our sin this way. If you're a Christian, if you identify with this king, repentance is not, as we know, just the beginning of the Christian life. Martin Luther said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So Christian, is that how you would characterize your life? An entire life of changing your mind to see your sin for what it is, turning from your sin and trusting in Christ? The more we consider the cross, uh, the more we will see the pride of our hearts. We will no longer be able to assume as we look around at other people, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. Because we'll be looking at the cost of our sin on the cross as we daily meditate on the price of our redemption. It can be easy to despair. <laughs> if you're anything like me, you can think, good grief, I've been following the Lord for however many years, 35 years, and I'm still struggling like this. I, still, I haven't made as much progress as I think I should, and that can be discouraging. But friends, again, this is not about our performance. This is about His. He paid the price for sinners like you and me. Well, the cross shows us how we naturally respond to God's King. We mock Him, and we kill Him. But at the same time, the cross demonstrates God's response to sinners like us. The Son is crucified so that repentant sinners might see that God's Son and King is there for us. In our place condemned he stood. It was our sin that held him there until it was accomplished. At the cross, God's plan was fulfilled. The kingdom of God was not only at hand, but God installed his king on his cross slash throne for all who have eyes of faith to see. And all who see this true king lifted up for sinners like you and me must fall on their faces, pouring contempt on all their pride. Christ was abandoned by his friends and handed over to his enemies, but it was about to get worse for Jesus. So in our second point, we'll consider God's response to us and our response to him in faith. And point two, believe. Look with me at chapter 15 of Mark, starting in verse 33. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, 
Why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, See, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a stick, offered him a drink, and said, Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion, who is passing, who is standing opposite him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. The motif of point number two here on belief is going to be the number two. God does two things. He brings darkness, and he tears the temple curtain in two. Jesus does two things. He cries, and he dies. And we can do two things. We can pity the man, or we can believe that this man was truly the Son of God. Let's start with our response to Jesus on the cross. In verses 35 through 36, some standing there think that Jesus, maybe when he cries, Eloi, Eloi, kind of maybe sounds like Elijah. Maybe they think he's calling Elijah down to rescue him. And in pity, they offer him a drink. They offer him some wine. And then they wait. Let's see if Elijah comes and rescues him. You know, I, I think considering the circumstances, it wasn't everyone who was mocking him before, before the cross. Uh, some in the crowd Certainly, as they saw his physical suffering, his agony, they had pity on him. I heard, what did this guy do? Did he really deserve this? I felt sorry for him. You know, many who watched the, the film that came out years ago, Mel Gibson's The Passion of Christ, were, were moved by the, the physical agony that Jesus went through as it's pictured in that film. And I think today we can have a, a similar response to, to Jesus' suffering on the cross. Like, oh, that is really, that's awful. That was so unjust. Uh, the pain that he must have felt as we, as we hear the details of how victims would die by crucifixion. Mark spares us those details. You know, so we can pity Jesus just like many standing there did. But in verse 39, we see a better response. A Gentile outsider, a Roman centurion, in charge, presumably, of this very execution, confesses, truly, this man was the Son of God. Yeah, two, two responses to, to Jesus is death. A, a person who pities Jesus and a person who believes in Jesus and confesses his identity. Friends, I think at first glance, those two responses can look pretty similar, and yet they could not be more different. Let's consider why by now considering the two things that Jesus does. He cries and he dies. First, he cries in verse 34. Jesus quotes Psalm 22, 1. Maybe you remember when Tanner read that earlier in the service. You know, we, we considered last week how it must have really stung for Jesus to be betrayed, denied, abandoned by his friends. But words cannot describe here the agony for Jesus, the Son, to be abandoned 
by his own father. And it wasn't just that the father separated himself uh, from God the Son. It wasn't like he turned a blind eye. And it wasn't also that Jesus just felt abandoned. It's like, oh man, this is, this is really lonely. No, at the cross, as we considered from the Passover and the Lord's Supper and the Garden of Gethsemane, the Son was drinking the dregs of the Father's wrath on Him for human sin in the place of sinners. You know, one of the, one of the books that has helped me most in understanding uh, just the, even just the surface of how profound what is happening right here on the cross is John Stott's The Cross of Christ. I brought a, co- a copy up with me. I'd highly recommend this book into delving in what is happening at the cross. What is the significance of when Jesus cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Uh, listen to what John Stott says. It is clear from Old Testament usage that to bear sin means neither to sympathize with sinners nor to identify with their pain nor to express their penitence nor to be persecuted on account of human sinfulness as others have argued nor even to suffer the consequences of sin in personal or social terms but specifically this is what it means to bear sin but specifically to endure its penal consequences, to undergo its penalty. That's what was happening when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was bearing the just penalty for sin. In other words, Jesus' cry on the cross, we see his role in full as the suffering servant from Isaiah 53. He was pierced because of our rebellion crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on Him, and we are healed by His wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished Him for the iniquity of us all. Isaiah goes on to say, yet the Lord was pleased to crush Him severely. This is how God responds to our pride, our unbelief, and our rebellion against Him. He crushes the Son. The Son is abandoned to God's judgment for us. This is the Son's cry, and then He dies. Verse 37, Jesus breathes His last the breath that had brought life to all creation, the breath that had spoken of the love of the Father for sinners, the the breath that had spoken the words, be healed, be forgiven, be raised, that breath took its last breath. The eternal first breath came to an end in a mysterious way there at Golgotha that day. Again, in our text this morning, 
Jesus only directly does two things. He cries and He dies. How does God respond? Two responses. First, in verse 33, He brings the darkness of judgment. We've already considered this in part from the perspective of the sun. The prophet Amos had prophesied hundreds of years prior, in that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. This is the darkness of God's judgment on the sun. Second, at the death of Jesus, the curtain of the temple is ripped from top to bottom. You know, the the curtain that was torn at Christ's death was probably the curtain that separated or barred access to the Holy of Holies. Uh, The high priest was the only one allowed to go behind that curtain and only once a year at the Day of Atonement. But with Christ suffering the penalty for sins on the cross, He became the final atonement, a satisfaction for sinners. And so... With the destruction of that curtain, religion, as man knew it, was over. God's Son had fulfilled the law's requirement, and access was now open to all, Jew and Gentile, men and women, children, people from every nation no longer needed to travel to Jerusalem or go to the temple to worship God. But Jesus becomes now the entryway to access to God. All could come to Christ now in faith through the sacrifice of the Son as a way to fellowship to God. How we respond to what God has done here is the most important thing about us. In this royal exchange where God judges Sinners like us, or judges the Son in the place of sinners like us, how we respond to that will make all the difference for your eternity. So, how will you respond to this? Consider for a moment again the response of the Roman centurion in verse 39. You know, the Roman centurion doesn't look at the son as he dies and say, you know what, I really need to be a better person. I, I resolve, you know, I should stop killing people for work. I need to be nicer. I should be a better husband or father. I should pray more. I should maybe learn a little bit about the Holy Scriptures that this, that this guy preached and believed. I should get involved in a faith community or give more money to charity. You know, all those things would be be good, good things to do, but they are not the way to God. That is man's way to God. But God's way is through seeing Jesus on the cross as the Son of God. So, what does it mean to respond to the Son of God and the gospel in faith today, like the centurion did. What does it mean? We believe when we see Jesus, the Son of God, as the only way that we can know 
free access and fellowship and forgiveness with God the Father. The only way that we can have access is through the Son, not through our own good deeds. Belief is trusting that God alone saves His people through His Son. There's nothing more for you and I to do but to entrust ourselves to God's justice and mercy that meet at the cross. The Son of God died to show us what kind of God He was. The Son is the suffering one who died in the place of sinners. He was the Son who is judged in our place. And when you see that, and your life is turned upside down by that reality, then you can stand amazed in the presence of Jesus and say, truly, this man was the Son of God by faith. So, do you believe in this Jesus? Is this your confession today? Or is it more a resolution to be better, to do better tomorrow? If our confession is Christ alone, we've got some good news to share. And that brings us to our third and final point, proclaim. This is how we respond to the Son of God in the gospel. We proclaim. We'll pick things up in Mark 15, verse 40. There were also women watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women followed him and took care of him. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. When it was already evening, because it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin who was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God, came and boldly went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he had already died. When he found out from the centurion, he gave the corpse to Joseph. After he bought some linen cloth, Joseph took him down and wrapped him in the linen. Then he laid him in a tomb cut out of the rock and rolled a stone against the entrance to the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were watching where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they could go and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb for us? Looking up, they noticed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he told them. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they put him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee, and you will see him there just as he told you. They went out and ran from the tomb, because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them. And they said nothing to anyone, since they were afraid." Well, our final text in Mark is framed by the activity of three women. These faithful women stayed loyal to Jesus even when all the male disciples abandoned him. But I don't think Mark is trying to, like, score a point for the ladies at the expense of the men here. No, Mark doesn't play that comparison and competition game 
uh, that we so often play between the sexes or even between Jew and Gentile. In chapter 14, all the male disciples abandoned Jesus, running away in fear. But here at the end, chapter 16, verse 8, it's the women who run away terrified after being told that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Male and female were all afraid. Maybe just when you thought that uh, the book of Mark was an anti-Semitic work to lambast the Jews based on the trial, well, here at the end, we have another surprise. A faithful member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. Do you remember who the Sanhedrin were? That was who sentenced Jesus to death, who turned Jesus over to Pilate for his crucifixion. But a prominent member of that Sanhedrin comes and boldly asks Pilate if he can bury Jesus' body. Uh, That was not common. Most crucified victims were left to rot uh, or thrown in mass graves. Joseph, as a member of the Sanhedrin, risks his, his life, his career, his honor, all because what we see in verse 43, Mark tells us that he was looking forward to the kingdom of God. Looking forward to the kingdom of God. Pilate confirms, we have the repetition of Pilate confirming that Jesus is in fact dead. The centurion had a vested interest. He needed to know if the victim was dead. Confirms it. Joseph gets the body. Joseph, who's looking forward to the kingdom of God, little does he know that he's carrying in his arms the body of the king. I think Joseph of Arimathea is an example of bold faithfulness for us today. Joseph wouldn't have to look forward to the coming of the kingdom of God for long because of what we read in Mark 16, 5. When Mary, Mary and Salome enter the tomb, they encounter an angel. That's how this young man is described, an angelic appearance, who tells them, well, some remarkable things, to say the least. Uh, Look with me at verse 6. Don't be alarmed. Easier said than done. He told them, you are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they put him. Friends, if this is made up, if what that angel said was not true, or this never happened, we're wasting our time here. We uh, might as well just be a social gathering or not come back at all. If this is just a fairy tale, a myth to give us inspiration, you know, like Jesus was a really solid teacher, spoke with authority, did some amazing things. If that's all that this is, uh, well, what happens next and what the angel says next doesn't make any sense. Because listen to what he says in verse 7. But go... Tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. The the gospel of Mark is the story of the cluelessness of the disciples. They fail Jesus time and again, and in his hour of greatest need, they abandon him. But here in verse 7, we see their recommissioning. The Gospel of Matthew has the Great Commission. Here in Mark, we have the recommissioning of the disciples. 
Jesus is going ahead of them to the place where it all started, in Galilee, where Jesus first saw his disciples, many of them fishing, and he called them, and he said, come and follow me. You know, when the disciples first saw Jesus, they were amazed and confused in his presence, and they didn't always do a very good job of following him, did they? But this announcement that he is going ahead of them, that he is no longer in the tomb, that he is no longer dead, but he has risen, and he is coming to his disciples is a message of hope. We certainly know that it's a message of hope because we know the rest of the story, or we know the end of the Gospel of Mark, or we know about the, the book of Acts and how the church came from the bold proclamation of the Spirit-filled proclamation of these very disciples who were so scared at one point. Jesus was going ahead of them to Galilee not to scold them. He, he wasn't like, okay, which, which one of you was so eager to get away from me that you ran away naked? You know, which, which one of you was it? No, the Son of God wasn't raised to highlight our failures. Christ was raised to vindicate the justice of God and to say that the ransom paid by Christ was paid in full. Christ was raised to begin a new era, the era of the kingdom of God, where we come into Christ's kingdom not based on our religion, our past, our performance, or our status, but we come into God's kingdom by repenting and believing in the gospel of the Son of God. We have all failed Jesus like the disciples have, and we will continue to do so. Now, all too often, instead of repenting, we try to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We maybe defend ourselves rationalize or minimize our sin. Instead of believing that God's Word is true and that Jesus is who He says He is, so often we're filled with fear and instead look of our, to ourselves for motivation and inspiration. Instead of proclaiming what God has done in the gospel in Christ all too often, we run away afraid like these women at the end of Mark's gospel. But friends, That's who the gospel is for. That's who Mark's gospel is for. The fearful, the weak, the sick, the poor, for women, for men, for children, for Jew, for Gentile. With the resurrection of the Son of God, we proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God and that Jesus is alive. Those who have identified with Christ in his death through repentance and believe that Jesus is the Son of God will also be raised in resurrection life just like Jesus to the eternal kingdom. So, friend, if you are a citizen of this kingdom, if you are something, someone like Joseph of Arimathea who's looking forward to the kingdom of God and you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Who is someone you can share this joyful news with this week? 
This is the best news that the world has ever known, that Jesus is alive, and he is not coming to scold us or to judge us for our failures, but he is coming for those who are looking forward to the coming of his son. Because Christ lives, we know the power of the kingdom of God in our lives. We who are all too often spiritual failures know that Christ is going ahead of us, and he will strengthen us to proclaim what he has done in the death and the resurrection of his son. We will fail, but Christ came to save failures. He came so that we might have hope, not in ourselves, but in him. Well, what do you think? Did the gospel of Mark live up to its billing? Mark told us in 1.1 what this was about. He said, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. How do we respond? Well, what are Jesus' first words in the gospel of Mark? Chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God has come in the person of the Son of God, crucified for our sins and raised for our justification. Today, you can know his friendship and his forgiveness. So won't you repent, believe, and proclaim the good news of what God has done in his son? Let's pray. Lord, we confess that our natural tendency is to look to ourselves for hope. Lord, our hearts are often cold, apathetic, even bored at times, we confess, when we consider the most amazing news that the world has ever known. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would give us faith. Help us to turn uh, from our callous hearts. We pray that you would take the scales off our eyes, that we might see Jesus afresh, that you might restore our first love. Lord, help us to rejoice in the resurrection each day. We might wake each day that you give us, looking forward to the coming kingdom of God when you return, Jesus, and make all things new. So, Lord, help us to be bold until that day in our proclamation of the news of King Jesus. Lord, fill us with love for Christ who came to save spiritual failures like us. Lord, we thank you for identifying with us and bearing the punishment that we deserved on the cross so that we might know forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. We pray all of this in the name of King Jesus, the Son of God. Amen.